Hi listener, Frank here. I've got a little bonus announcement before this episode begins properly, and that is that we're doing yet another Drawn to the Flame event. The event is taking place on Sunday the 1st of July, which is the first Sunday in July, so in just over four weeks' time. And the plan is to do Labyrinths of Lunacy again for a third time. That's crazy, you're probably shouting. You've already done that event a couple of times, Frank. Why would you want to do it again? You can only have 12 players for Labyrinths. Or can you? Here's the thing. I've managed to convince my local game shop that 36 seats rather than 12 would be a good amount. And they're up for it. They've said we can have nine tables, so we can have... Nine tables of four, which means we can have three different versions of the labyrinths in epic multiplayer mode running simultaneously, which I think is phenomenal. Are you interested? Do you want to come and play the labyrinth with 11 other people in a room with 35 other people taking on the labyrinth and then come for a beer afterwards and talk about Arkham? Please come along. How do you get involved? It's really simple. Just email drawntotheflamepodcast at gmail.com and I can send you a massive email with loads of information, and we can go from there. There are probably a few things that we should just touch on really quickly, though. The first is, I normally suggest to people that they say a preferred role, so fighter, clue-getter. I normally also suggest mystic, support, and wild, if you just want to kind of do a crazy thing. So that would be really useful, because what I then do is I sort people into teams. You might not know anyone else, You might just be really keen to kind of check it out and you can then just say, yeah, I'd really like to do it and I'd feel most comfortable being a fighter. And I'll say, great, I'll find you a clue getter, I'll find you a support person, I'll find you a mystic and you'll be set up to go. And ideally I'll do that ahead of time so we can save time on the day. The second thing I need to know is, are you buying a copy of Labyrinths of Lunacy? Because if I'm right, and this is all gone to plan, Labyrinths of Lunacy is coming out in the UK Today, when this episode is going out, Thursday the 7th of June. So there might be people out there who are buying copies for themselves. And that's really important because I only have access to three copies. And I don't think I should go and buy six more copies just for this event. So what I'm looking for is six people who have single copies who can help me run the event and are happy to have a copy on their table that's their own. I'll set up three tables but then we'll have six other people with their setup i'm pretty sure there'll be people out there buying this but just so you know if if 36 people rsvp and none of you are willing to buy a copy of labyrinths we might be in a little tricky situation but i'm sure it'll be fine but yeah i'll sort out the teams i'll make sure everyone knows who they're meant to be in touch with normally about two weeks before i put everyone in touch so they can start planning talking about decks talking about what they can and can't do picking weaknesses things like that If you're the kind of person who really wants to get involved more and wants to lead a team, that would be amazing. I know there are a couple of people who have sort of stepped into that role in the past anyway. Let me know. The cost, like the last event, will be £2 per seat, which you can just pay me on the day. It's very easy. And yeah, we'll aim to go for a drink afterwards. Oh, one final thing. I can't be there at midday, so I'm going to aim to be there at 12.30 and we'll, as we've done in the past do a little bit of setup at sort of 12.30 to 12.45 and start after that. The labyrinth can be really time consuming, so probably we'll finish about 4.35 and then yeah, come for a drink, come socialise, meet new Arkham players. Hopefully this is something people will want to do, hopefully it's something that is a bit of a sort of an event thing to meet more Arkham players in this kind of size of group and I've just forgotten another thing. The way the labyrinth works is groups have to pause at the end of the round they don't you don't sort of run the game at your own speed and it's quite useful to have someone just checking that everyone's finished and things like that which i've done at the past two labyrinths event i reckon i can do more groups at once which is why i'm going up to 36 players so i think we can have three sets of labyrinth going on at the same time so that's how that will work i probably should have said that earlier anyway i'm waffling now enjoy the rest of this episode send your emails to drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com and look forward to seeing you on the 1st of July. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly, and sometimes whenever we can manage it, podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. <laughs>
I'm your host, Jungle Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Jungle Peter. Hi, Jungle Peter. How are you doing? I'm great, Jungle Frank. Much better than last week. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> How about yourself? How are things? <laughs> yeah, th- things are good. The sun is pouring in through this window, which feels, you know, it's again, it's like the the hot sun of the tropics beating down upon me like I'm in the jungle, which is great. Yeah, just yeah. What you want. I mean, it's it's almost uncanny the similarities between Edinburgh and the jungles of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, almost. Yeah, exactly. I think I think just that as a sort of change of pace. I know we've joked before that a really sunny Arkham scenario would be really weird, but Arkham Files does have a track record of taking you to different climates and weather conditions. It's not all kind of gloomy hamlets in Massachusetts. And yeah, it felt like that doing jungle exploration in the untamed wilds. It felt, wow, we're really somewhere different here. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a, the art and the, the flavour text and everything. There's definitely that horrible, wet, humid heat feel comes off it, doesn't it? And it's yeah. a good time of year to be playing it when we've had we've had a really long winter. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, and, yeah. and it's turned quite quickly into a really kind of hot late spring, early summer. So yeah, it feels perfect, perfect exploring season. Exactly, yes. So listener, this is really a companion episode to our previous episode, which was all about the new rules and new weaknesses of the Forgotten Age. And in this episode, we're going to take some of those points and talk more about our own experiences in the first two scenarios of the campaign. So if you've not yet played The Untamed Wilds or The Doom of Estli, this is probably the point to not play. Uh, to not listen. <laughs> Definitely play. Point. You want to play. This is the point to, to not listen and go and play them and then come back and listen to this episode. But if you've already played them, listen on with impunity. We're going to talk about them and our experiences and things like that. So it's interesting you mentioned the flavour text and the art conjuring up this very different feel, the sort of southern Mexico jungle feel. I really loved even the prologue to this campaign and the fact that we're reading diary entries that just felt so evocative to me of the kind of classic exploration genre that you might have someone recording notes of where they've been or what they've done. Um, You know, another tough day in the jungle. We haven't made much progress feels to me. Yeah, it really put me in that in that place very quickly, which was a great change of gear from Carcosa, I'd say. Yeah, and, and it's you writing the diary as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Which is which is an interesting Yeah. It it's it's what your character is thinking, which is which is interesting. I like it. Yeah, it must have been challenging to get a diary entries that all twenty or so of the released investigators might have written. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's like, oh, Ashkan Pete, you're a very good writer. <laughs> and Daisy. Uh, no, Daisy and uh, and Wendy. Yeah, <laughs> young but precocious. Yeah, called off for an important investigation expedition in the uh, in the jungle. Yeah, and friends with this renowned collector, yeah, Harlan yeah. Ernstein. Okay, well, um, what's your experience so far then, Frank, with the box set, the two scenarios in the box? One of delight, I think, qualified by it being a very new and as you hinted at in the last episode very different challenge but one that I've really enjoyed and really yeah delighted in felt that it was really satisfying to get stuck into this different style of campaign. Who have you played with? So I've played as Matteo in a two-player campaign I've also done a bit of Calvin and I've also done Ursula solo so I've, I've started dipping my toe in I am not that much of a fan of starting campaigns when I'm not able to carry them on. So I find it always a bit weird at this deluxe stage. I don't want to kind of burn out on the first two scenarios by playing them so many times with all of the investigators. But but yeah, I've I've already I've played enough that I feel like I've got a good handle on the scenarios and started to plot a route through. How about you? Well, I've played the my blind playthrough group. It's a, a four player group. And we've got everyone except Calvin from the new box in that team. So I'm playing as Matteo there. So we did... When, when you get onto four players, it takes a lot longer to play. So we generally only get one good run at a scenario in a session. Particularly playing blind as well, where you have yeah. to go slowly and steadily. And we talk about it for ages. Because we're, we're playing that on hard as well. Yeah. So we, we've done The Untamed Wilds. 
And then solo, I've done the Untamed Wilds one and a half times with Calvin, and also the Doom of Etsley with solo with Calvin as well. Nice. You just couldn't resist that temple. No, absolutely not. So I'm going to be playing that not blind with my blind group. <laughs> <laughs> but I've broken yeah. the news to them, and they've they've accepted accepted my uh, my admission. So in the previous episode, we mentioned supplies and the kind of the game outside of the game with what you take and, and what kind of preparation you need. And there's an interesting sort of semi-interlude between the two scenarios that a lot of the supplies are, are checked and that can have ramifications for the Doom of Edsley. So having now seen that interlude one, Restless Nights, with its four different, I don't know what they are, they're like little mini episodes, aren't they? little flavorlets have you been struck by any supplies that really are useful well it uh, i was surprised so i'm trying to think back what i've taken in my in my four player group i think i got the binoculars and something else that's two which i can't remember what it is i don't think it is medicine when we were all planning so one of our players has played it previously and he said he was taking medicine without a second head of hesitation. So we were like, well, why is he taking medicine? What does he know that we don't? Mm. Um, and he did, He actually ended up poisoned, so he was glad he did. <laughs> no, no, uh, actually, we all ended up poisoned because we got defeated. So I think we, maybe I did take some medicine then. Maybe we took a couple of doses of medicine across the team. No, no, I definitely took one. Anyway, I was surprised by how useful the blanket was, because obviously if you don't take a blanket, that's trauma straight away. Straight away, Yeah. So there's, there's potential for more experience, but then there's also potential for three trauma from this interlude. If you don't have a blanket, you don't have binoculars, and you're poisoned and don't have medicine. And if you've also, for some reason, not taken provisions, the next scenario you'll begin with two resources rather than five, or no resources if you're indebted. Yeah, that, that's pretty hairy, isn't it? I just want to give a special shout out to the pendant. Which still doesn't do anything. It definitely, it's yeah. not going to do anything. So the, the pendant, it's a reference to, I think we might have talked about this on the podcast before, but it's a reference to a, an item from Dark Souls, the first Dark Souls. When you start with the first Dark Souls, you get to pick a, an item to take with you. And quite a few of them are useful. But the pendant has the description, <laughs> a simple pendant with no effect. Even so, pleasant memories are crucial to survive on arduous journeys. And the point of it is, you, you kind of, you know, in Dark Souls, you, you go to all these fantastical places and defeat these world-shattering enemies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and you end up, you know, deep below the world. And it's it's nice to reflect on where you were before the journey started uh, and what, what kind of person you were back then with this item in your inventory. Mm. And you go through and you see the pendant and you go, oh, I remember. I remember when things were sunny and I, I was starting and I had no idea what I was getting into. So that that that's what the pendant is referencing. Yeah. But it is useless. And you've said to me you've not worked out yet if you think Matt is <laughs> playing on that and will actually give it a use. Well, well fam- or is- <laughs> famously in Dark Souls, everyone thought the pendant did something because everyone everything in Dark Souls has these hidden meanings to it. So there's there's layers beneath everything. All the flavor text is examined and it all has significance which isn't always immediately obvious. So everyone, of course, when they see an item which is supposedly useless, immediately thinks there's going to be some hidden use to it. And people walked around trying to use it in all sorts of places in the game and, you know, interpreting it in all different ways and trading it and dropping it, everything. And it it never did anything. And as far as anyone knows, it is totally useless. Only use is to remind you of what everyone knows. Yeah, it's definitely useless. It tells you it's useless. And like the one item everyone was convinced does something. It's total, totally literal in its description. So I, there's, there's, there's yeah. a, th- that, that's the kind of joke with the pendant. But the pendant in this campaign, it, it, that says as well that it's useless. So I don't know. There's a, there's a second reference point to this pendant, though. So in the mound, our narrator gets given a pendant and he's pretty dismissive of it. And it's just sort of Native American superstition. But as the story continues, the pendant seems to interact with various other things he finds. And there is that idea that perhaps actually it does have a special use and might be something that's protecting him in a way he doesn't even realise. And it'll be really interesting to see if Matt is playing off that as well. If there'll be a point where suddenly the pendant is 
useful because the interesting thing about supplies is you you record which supplies you've taken and you only cross them off when you're told to otherwise you just you have them so with medicine getting rid of poison you cross off a, a dose of medicine and that gets rid of poison for you and that's great but if you've taken the rope you don't have to cross it off when you use it it just stays with you so the the mound is a story that matt recommended as one of the thematic influences on the forgotten age isn't it yes and we're going to talk about that in more depth in the future i quite like the reference to the pendant because one of the themes in the forgotten age it's almost like you as an explorer know better than the people who are guarding these ruins and know how dangerous what is within is so in a similar way the, the, the titular, or the, sorry, the, the main character, the protagonist of the mound, he gets given this pendant and he's like, oh, it's just silly superstition. Actually, the superstition goes a lot deeper than what he expects. Yeah. But there's there's a lovely little passage in the mound. I think you shared it with me, Frank. I'll just read that out. It, it's a list of things that the protagonist is going to take with him to explore the mound when he goes out there where all these people have disappeared. And he says, uh, machete and trench knife for, for shrub clearing and excavating. Electric torches for any underground phase which might develop. Rope, field glasses, tape measure, microscope, and incidentals for emergencies. I'm not sure what incidentals are. Sundries. You know. Yeah, just any old stuff. A bag <laughs> of raisins. <laughs> but there's quite a lot of things there, which is, you know, so he's taking the rope, he's taking torches. He's even taking a trench knife. Yeah, he's 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 a guardian, right? He's yeah, he's a guardian. And right. trench knife. Yeah. He's Leo. It jumped out at me, obviously, the word machete, because that's an Arkham card. But then as I read it, I thought, wow, this is a real surprise moment as well of his kit. It's very good. So on my playthroughs, I've, especially in the Untamed Wilds, which I think on reflection is probably the, the harder of the two scenarios, the map has been, was really useful. Because I took that in my solo campaign, and that, that map yes. is so good. So the map allows you to look at the top three cards of the explore deck place one on the bottom and put the other two back on the top of the deck in an order of your choosing so that can then set up your next two explores because you could explore to the top location then if it connects and then explore again straight on to the next location if you've already if you've already done some planning so you can do some little sort of one-two punches with the explore deck can't you yeah i i used it to great to great success to find the the ruins so I think Great, I yeah. I explored, and it wasn't there. So I saw three cards, put one to the bottom, and then explored again. And then there was the ruins. So just shuffle that straight to the top. So that was what three cards down? Yeah. No, four cards down. So it saved me. You know, there was a good couple of actions. It saved me, and you know, let me just get right into position and shoot straight to the ruins. We might see a, a kind of player where their role is to just sit in the expedition camp using the map and setting up the deck for other people exploring so if if all of the cards you see are treacheries you might pick one that you want to trigger on a certain investigator it's a bit like scrying the encounter deck isn't it where you say right you're going to get the enemy you're going to get this willpower treachery and you're going to get this other thing you could do a similar thing where you're like right the next card is going to be overgrowth which stops you from exploring at the location so i'm going to you know, if we get someone to explore over here where we're actually not going to explore anymore, that's yeah. fine. That's a, a whiffed card. Uh, and it's perfect kind of... for Min, isn't it? Just barricade herself into the into the camp when everyone else has left and tell everyone else where to go. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, sort of command centre. Yeah, yeah. Command centre Min. But more generally, the explore mechanic really reminds me of Lost in Time and Space with that you know the the one tip I give people playing Lost in Time and Space is dedicate enough actions to finding locations, yeah. and this entirely is the same. Where you can get really bogged down, and if you're an investigator who relies on any kind of evasion or movement to get away from enemies, you have nowhere to go unless you've put time into exploring. And that leads me to one of these feelings about whether or not this is a, a difficult first scenario. And I think one of the challenges of it is. To find those other locations, you have to potentially draw two encounter cards a turn. You have to draw your normal Mythos phase draw and then also run into other treacheries as you try to explore. And that can feel really punishing. Do you spend no time exploring as you set up and then suddenly you're mobbed by enemies and you can't get away? Or do you 
rush to explore and find yourself getting like really beaten up before you've actually found anywhere to move and there's no obvious answer and i think the challenge is just to to make sure you're dedicating enough time to keep going that also means that in solo the encounter deck is still the same size so you're pressured more i would say in solo if you're playing multiplayer you can have someone dedicate time to exploring and have someone else dedicate time to protecting them or whatever else they're doing collecting clues and in solo as ever everything gets squeezed on you as the single investigator so my i think my ursula experience has made me feel like these scenarios are maybe easier than they are because of her action compression that as she explores which moves her into location she gets to investigate so she can kind of do everything combined but i'm sure with other investigators it's going to feel much more pressurized yeah yeah well i guess that leads us on to the general feel of the of the scenarios isn't it where we mentioned at the end of the last episode there's probably a different focus and a different pressure on your investigators in these two scenarios. Mm. I think one of the things we noticed is that our agility was being pressured a lot more. You say that's fair? Yes, I think so. I think it's not just that there are more agility testing encounter cards, although my impression would be I've not counted, but that there probably are, you know, combined with things like overgrowth that are testing agility. But it's also that we've got enemies that we don't want to kill because of vengeance. So then the way of dealing with them is also evading them, which adds another agility testing aspect. Yeah. What did you do in your four player? Were you trying to evade vengeance enemies or how did you approach it? Uh, I think only a couple came up in in our four player game. And mm. the first was a pit viper right in, right in the base camp, which yeah. we ended up killing. And then I think we did kill another pit viper later on as well, which made... The serpent from Yoth, which turned up later on, much more difficult to deal with. Oh yes, hunter and retaliate. Yeah, because he's not simple to hit either, is he? He's a three fight. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not easy. Yeah, especially on hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting you mention hard because the the other thing we saw here, I think this adds to this general feeling of different things being tested so you're having to move around with explore you're having more agility being tested it's not no longer just the dud fort stat the other thing is that the campaign bag setup is different carcosa and dunwich was identical except for a cultist token when you set up the bag but here we've seen actually a different spread of tokens so on standard you end up with a minus five in the bag whereas in standard before that's only a, a late campaign addition. And in hard, you have a plus one, which is remarkable, but also a, a minus six. And we start with an elder thing in the bag, which is normally the nastiest of the tokens, depending on who you're asking. So there's already this this range of probabilities where it feels like they've they've made the bag swingier. You can you can go three over and still get blown out by a minus five, or you can suddenly draw a plus one when you weren't expecting it did you feel like the bag was particularly tricky yeah it 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 was it's that odd scenario where and i think we we didn't properly appreciate it before we started playing it feels like you either pass without any problems at all or you fail like mm. you said that there's not much middle ground there and i think the we we didn't appreciate it so we don't as a group have that much experience of playing on hard either so I think what we could have done is been more selective about what we tried to pass and what we tried to fail. Yeah, well, which well, is the classic all, all, all piece of advice. We, we don't mind about failing, yeah. Yeah, and working out the ramifications of failure. I like that the bag has this range because it's perfect for when we're thinking about seal as well, and that plays into that new mechanic quite nicely. If you have the chance to seal a token, and it's one that you're probably not going to be able to boost out of range of without really over committing so sealing a minus five or a minus six for instance that's much more appealing than sealing certainly for me maybe mathematically it's the same sealing a minus four or a minus three where with a nice setup you're not going to need to worry about those too much yeah yeah it's i think we talked about it with chthonian stone didn't we if you can seal a minus four that means you're saving everyone the plus one they'd need to get to to go from plus three to plus four but if you're sealing a minus five, you're actually saving everyone the plus two that they would need to to guarantee safety from the minus five. So just having that greater diversity in the bag means that seal is more useful 
in terms of what it saves other investigators rather than in terms of what it's stopping, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so when you add these different elements together, the lack of a map, the range of the campaign bag, the need to spend actions to create that map, agility being tested, I think all of those things combining, that is probably quite a disorienting experience when you first step in and try things for the first time. I definitely felt playing with my friend playing Finn, it was that real need as well to sort of stick to your fundamentals. Like, what do we need to do? We both need to keep building our boards. We both need to keep finding clues. How do we do that? And not let the scenario sort of overwhelm you because I think they really can really quickly. I think, think that first play, we took a lot of damage. I think I was one damage off dying. Yeah. And well, then it was... all it takes is a curse of Yig and you're you're gone. Or arrows from the arrows from the trees as well. Yeah, arrows from the trees can can target everyone as well if you're unlucky. It can just be a scatter of damage across the whole party if you're all in ancient locations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd very much recommend not standing in ancient locations on that scenario. Yeah. So that sort of preparation for that, I think, is is interesting. But I, you know, I think there is a there is a distinction to be made from a scenario feeling different and a scenario feeling difficult, and we sometimes mistake difference for difficulty. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. But yeah, these are two. The the other thing that we're having to deal with, which Matt's talked about when we interviewed him about Carcosa, is we're dealing with the encounter sets that are going to be lasting for the entire campaign. And we're dealing with them in the first two scenarios when we have the least amount of experience. And that's that's also interesting. That Some of these encounter sets are going to be really painful down the line. They're going to be scenario eight encounter sets. It's just that we're seeing them right away. We're seeing also small observation in this deluxe box the fewest number of cards aren't being used in these first two scenarios so in dunwich you had all of the abomination set and all of the dunwich encounter sets not used in um, extracurricular activities or house always wins and in carcosa you had the the big monsters and the bayakis not used in the first two scenarios and in this right. in, in this deluxe it's only the narcotic brotherhood who aren't used. So everything else is being shoved into these scenarios. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, the other thing I, I noticed as well, just going, touching on the difficulty briefly, I, I feel like it, the the consequences for failure aren't necessarily too harsh either, here either. It's certainly not from what we've seen so far. The, I think the wor- really the worst that gets happened is that you're poisoned. Mm. And you can resign as well. So, you know, if if, if, if you're not going to do it, you can run off. And you still get to go through the next scenario. It just takes you a bit longer to get to the uh, to the temple. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I suppose if you don't resign and you take trauma, you could potentially go into scenario two with four trauma, depending on what supplies you've taken. Yeah. And I'm sure... I mean, you said when we were talking about Calvin before, he is an investigator to challenge us as players to think about trauma in a new way. And it's, I'm sure it's no coincidence that we're playing a campaign that is pretty generous with its trauma. For most investigators, going into scenario two with two or three trauma would be horrible. But for Calvin, maybe if he's also seen uh, Voice of the Messenger, he might might be going in on four or five trauma and be feeling pretty chuffed about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, that's that's less damage he needs to take down the line. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that trauma's there. And I actually saw a comment online... I think on the FFG forums, but it could have been on Board Game Geek about how healing will come back to the fore as well, because you know I've seen this conversation happen a few times online. Healing cards are only worthwhile if it if it's the difference between defeat or victory, but if you're starting scenarios where you've only got three or four health or three or four sanity left, healing actually could be the difference there between keeping you in the scenario or not. So yeah. packing that emergency aid or first aid or logical reasoning, maybe clarity of mind, I'm not sure about that. But having those extra cards just to keep you topped up because you're going to get whacked so much by little points of damage and horror. Or logical reasoning. Are, are those, oh actually I don't yeah. know whether those, there's lots of like Curse of Yig and stuff, there's stuff that stick around in your in your threat area. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, logical reasoning I think in Finn is super useful. But not all of them are terror, are they? Like no, the, that's true. Curse of Yig is curse. Yeah, yeah, and there's a one of them's a blunder as well. I think. Yeah, I think that's lost in the wilds is a blunder. And hey, you were right in our episode when I said there weren't 
other blunders apart from uh, caught red-handed you'd you'd seen lost in the wilds or Lowell's yeah Prize, which was a blunder yeah yeah but it was an encounter car which is why we couldn't find it yeah yeah we just not not tracked it down in terms of terrors in the set there's a couple in the forgotten ruins set but they don't stay in your threat area anyway and that's all i just i i have a distinct memory of looking over in our first game and seeing ursula with three cards in her <laughs> in, yeah. in, in her threat area yeah Oh, is Call of the Unknown a terror? No, it's a task. Oh, well, it could have been some sweet tech. Yeah, but having these cards around, I suppose the other the other detail that's going to add to this taking points of damage everywhere is if you're failing evasion because of alert. Like, that's another... It's hard to quantify at the moment, but the amount of damage an evadey character might be taking will probably increase just for those times that they fail evasions that they you know, were unlucky on with this swingy bag and end up with a couple more hits than they'd normally take. That means, again, ways to heal will be really useful. So what do you think of the story so far, Frank? Part of my delight with this campaign is how excited I am about this story. I feel like it's zigged and zagged already about four times in these first two scenarios. Yeah. From setting off to a place, you know, I've done a little bit of reading about the Aztecs before the campaign began. And they were saying, oh, yeah, they're looking for this Aztec city in southern Mexico. And I was going, hang on, but they weren't really in southern Mexico. That Like, they've got that wrong. And then, of course, it's because it's this fictional Aztec place. And then we start to think, well, maybe it's not Aztec at all. And then particularly in Doom of Esli, with the changes that go on within that temple, you start to think this isn't an archaeology expedition at all. This is now a science and technology expedition. <laughs> you know, there's... There's something very weird going on about time and tech and things like that. Yeah, so that that got me very excited. What what about for you? Well, yeah, I was suspicious. It does make a big deal in the intro set text for the two the two scenarios that this isn't a city where they expect to find an Aztec city. It's, it, yeah, it, it hammers the point home on that. And then when you find they find this weird artifact, electrical artifact down there, and the whole temple rearranges. Sort of hammers it home, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. It was like almost like um, isn't there a? I think there's an alien versus predator where there's like a pyramid in the Antarctic that does sort of rearrangey things. It's like that sort of level of almost schlocky sci-fi, yeah, madness going on that I yeah. really enjoyed. It was well, it, really it, cool. It, it's a common, it's a, it's a common trope that these, and, and I think it, it goes back quite a while in Lovecraft influenced fiction as well having these uh, these alien technologies or alien civilizations that influenced our ancient it's like stargate as well wasn't it the whole stargate yeah yeah, yeah the egyptians were, were really aliens and actually marvel as well where the asgardians are just aliens who came to earth and pretended to be gods right yeah yeah there's a there's a rich seam of that kind of material isn't there yeah i think the the feeling of wonder around that was that you were discovering it as you played so it wasn't it wasn't in the flavor text. You arrive at the temple, but, you know, it's actually a, a modern technology or whatever. It, did, it wasn't as explicit as that. It was in the playing of it, the walls start to hum and there are glyphs that don't make sense. And then you find this relic and everything kind of shifts around. Yeah, that that to me, to be kind of in the driving seat of that exploration was was very exciting. And I think because we, we've sort of got a hint there's going to be time travel involved, haven't we? Mm, yeah. And I think it's it's an interesting. We I think we speculated ages ago how interesting it would be to to revisit uh, locations across a campaign, either different versions of the same locations or using the same location set. And that looks like it's going to be one of the things that happens here, especially with the time travel as well. So yes. almost the same map, but viewed at different times, or having the same map move between two time periods. Mm. I, yeah. That's a really interesting idea. And I, the fact that we keep coming back to this jungle as well. Um, although we're heading back to Arkham for the next scenario, yeah. I believe. I'm certain we'll be back here in the not-too-distant future. We've got that rainforest set to reuse. There's one location connection in the rainforest set that we don't have a location for yet. So that's like crying out for another thing in the jungle. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Found. And the the Harbinger as well has got some damage on it. But has disappeared. Yeah. It's disappeared, yeah. yeah. It has an eye-watering 10 health per investigator. 
Fantastic. And alert, retaliate, and hunter. Oh, that's <laughs> just, a to, just to try out all of the keywords. Yeah. Interestingly, on time travel, there are quite a lot of little hints at that. So you've got Aztecs 500 years after they were annihilated by the Spanish. You know, they shouldn't exist. How have they survived for that long? But then you've got Iktaka, who can speak English perfectly. And later in, in the second interlude, she turns up wearing western and doing uh air quotes you know sort of american clothing yeah so there's this this like well hang on what's she doing there why how does she speak perfect english where did she get these clothes you go to this very ancient temple but it has a device that has electricity that you actually don't comprehend so yeah immediately there's these questions of are we dealing with something ancient or are we dealing with something modern or a bit of both so yeah straight away hints it's great isn't it how even just a couple of encounter cards can give you a sense of story and having something to do with time straight away makes you think okay we're in slightly yogg territory here yeah yeah absolutely yeah what did you think about the fact that you get this choice to either return the re- to either put the relic in a museum or give it to harlan urnstone well I th- we talked about this briefly uh i'm not entirely sure i trust alejandro mm. just something about him seemed a bit untrustworthy you know what i mean yeah he was certainly very suspicious of iktaka wasn't he yeah he certainly knows more than he lets on about what's going on is he really a snake man is there going to be a reveal moment where he, he snows his skin opens off. his yeah oh grace yeah there's there's just so much story to comprehend towards the end of this after Doom of Estli, there are five different resolutions to Doom of Estli, or six if you count no res. And then there's five different expeditions end in the second end interlude. Yeah, so yeah. A lot of like choose your own adventure style, what option do you want to do, turn to this or turn to that, and a lot of different ground to cover in terms of how this is going to set up the rest of the campaign, which I suppose is like Carcosa, but it feels very different in terms of these expedition choices it's one of these things when you when you read the, the fight, fighting fantasy or choose your own adventure books sometimes you'll be you'll be reading a passage next to a say a picture or, or you know a word will catch your eye from another passage and it'll be something mm-hmm. you've you've no idea how that person or how someone would get to that point in the story and sometimes that happens when you're looking at the resolutions you'll something will catch your eye and it'll be like what <laughs> how how yeah. could that happen yeah did did this uh, couple of words catch your eye Record an additional 10 tally marks in Yig's fury. Oh, God, I didn't even see that. Yeah. Yikes. As you've angered Yig with your foolish actions. Yeah. So there's a possibility... Because the, the Harbinger is Vengeance 5. Yes, but I, almost impossible to kill. Yeah. In this scenario, in, when, when we meet it. You have to... Like, potentially with the shotgun. Yeah. If you could hit it twice with... This is in solo. With... Like, maximum damage, you do five damage and five damage and you'd kill it straight away. Yeah. I can't remember the text on the Harbinger. Would it disappear before it, it ends up in the victory display, or would it? Uh, good question, I'm not sure. The forced effect is after it's successfully attacked or evaded. So I think you'd resolve the successful attack fully, which would defeat it, and it would end up in the victory display. I was going to say you could mind wipe it, but I think it's elite, isn't it? It is elite, yeah. yeah so that's not happening. Yeah, you could pull off some crazy damage play you know the more the more investigators you add though the harder it gets to do that yeah like a sort of a sleight of hand shotgun play in leo it's kind of possible if you've got four xp in the previous scenario yeah yeah and of course he can use double or nothing as well can't he you can double or nothing chuck in a couple of vicious blows have other ways of boosting your combat yeah like potentially do it in one shot but yeah that that's kind of kind of scary that five vengeance that's sort of uh in an order of magnitude greater than what we've seen so far with sort of one and two and then there's yeah depending on which resolution you get up to another 10 you could at this point be on sort of 14 or 15 tally marks in yig's fury yeah and as we don't yet know what that means that's to me quite scary (laughs) yeah dangerous and what did you think about the sort of the weird time warpiness of how you finish doom of ed sleep because it's not really a time warp is it it's just a case that you can keep trying if you want to. Yeah, you can keep on going back, and but you can decide not to return, can't you? You can decide, well, I've had enough mm-hmm. of this. We're going to carry on. Oh, we're going to blow the place up. 
Yeah, that's right. That's what, and, and then that's you, what brings in Yig's fury. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you find you find the, the relic after all, so the, the story can keep on moving. But it's not like you can farm the scenario for more experience mm. because you you don't carry over anything except trauma. Yes, I really like that. I thought that's a really cool idea. Um, although I I gather you know maybe the last thing you'll want to do after being destroyed by by the temple is go back in for another shot. And if you go back in for another shot as well, you have to place a doom for each time yeah. you've gone back in. So you'd start then, and the entryway would have you know one or two doom on it. So immediately you're losing a couple of turns. Yeah, which to my mind is is very interesting. But may, maybe at that point you've worked out more of a strategy. So when we played at Finn and Matteo, I was getting really beaten up, and I actually went and resigned. Before we'd before the temple had reordered, because I just thought this is a lost cause. I'm going to resign, and maybe he can finish himself. And then Finn managed to get the relic. The temple reorganized, and then what he spent his time doing was drawing cards to draw into Elusive, and Elusive back and left. There were three or four enemies in play coming for him down the corridor, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he could have like slowly. I think he had a, we had a few more turns left. It wasn't a kind of last turn clutch play, but. Finn worked out that his quickest way out was yeah elusiving rather than trying to move evade move again get hit evade move you know all of that kind of there are some cards bonus evade which are so useful in those kind of scenarios and we we, we saw it uh, there's a similar one in the catacombs isn't it where elusive is incredibly useful yes elusive is just a a fantastic it's card. a fantastic card anyway but in, in those it's like Oh well, yeah, I guess I'm out now. Because <laughs> yeah. I remember playing. I'm out of here is also super useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember playing it as Calvin, and it, it was it was tight towards the end. And when you leave a couple of enemies there lurking towards the end, you're like, oh, is it, can, can I get past these? I yeah, I, I know what I left on the way in because <laughs> I didn't think I'd have to deal with them. But it turns or, out or you I had did. another way round them as well because as the temple grows, it's a kind of big triangle shape. Yes. And that every location has other connections, which is great. And then suddenly all of those have been, you know, you've got ways around people and then suddenly you don't. These scenarios are ones where I'd really like a playmat with the locations mapped out on them. Mm, so I can yeah, fill them in as I go in. Um, that's yeah. potentially cheating a little bit, but I think it would look quite good. It was it's almost like this idea of exploring a space that's that exists where you don't, you don't know where everything is. Mm, yeah. As Ursula... I felt like I had an easy way out and ended up engaging the Harbinger and evading and missing the evade and getting hit because the Harbinger's alert and then getting hit in the enemy phase. So I took four damage and four horror, as I mentioned in the previous episode. And I'd already taken taken one trauma, uh, physical trauma already. And I think I'd taken one point of damage in that scenario. So I was suddenly up to six and I was up to five horror. And having felt like everything was on lock, it was then like, I have to evade the Harbinger next turn without getting hit. Like, I can't I can't let it, anything happen here uh, in terms of negative tokens or slipping up or getting another enemy. And then I had Pathfinder down, so I then like sprinted for the exit. And with Pathfinder, you can kind of zoom away from it, from people chasing you. But uh, really hairy, really, like a really scary tense moment where Ursula was cornered by this spear-wielding snake. Awesome. It will stay with me for a moment. <laughs> okay, well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Just very briefly, I wanted to look at the map of the forthcoming scenarios, because they might give us a hint oh, yes. of what's yes. happening yet. Well, next. Hit, hit me with the names, then. So we've had Expedition's End. We've had the Untamed Wilds, Doom of Edsley, and Expedition's End. We then have Fred, Threads of Fate, which we know is going back to Arkham, and then there's the Boundary Beyond, which we've it's been announced by FFG as the kind of time travelly one back yes, in Mexico. That's right, yeah. There's then an interlude, The Jungle Beckons, and then there's Heart of the Elders is the next scenario, and that's the one that we've been told is another temple scenario. Right, okay. But after that, none of the packs have been announced. So then we have the City of Archives. Interesting. Another interlude, so many interludes, Those Held Captive. Oh God, that doesn't sound promising, does it? And then we have the depths of Yoth. Well, we know who comes from Yoth, don't we? Yeah, the serpent from Yoth. Yeah, he comes from Yoth. So I guess we're going to the house of Yoth. There's another interlude, the darkness. And then the final scenario is shattered eons. Oh dear. Which 
could be anything. Well, that's obviously must be something to do with breaking time if it's shattered eons, surely? Yeah, yeah. And it's the only way to stop Yig if we think Yig is definitely going to be the, the ancient one throughout this campaign, which I think the Father of Serpents will be. Might be something to do with going back in time to stop Yig ever arriving or something. Yeah, maybe, yeah. It's hard to know. Amazing. And I mean, Matt Matt said he didn't want every campaign to just be go to another, like another worldly location in the final scenario and and fight. So maybe we end up in Yoth for the last two scenarios. <laughs> you know, maybe it's something more. Maybe the boss fight is in the depths of Yoth and the darkness that interlude is to do with finding our way back home or not. Yeah, I, I've got a terrible feeling though that, that people who don't make it are going to be stuck in the past. Ooh, which I, yeah. I always find that kind of existentially terrifying. Oh, do you think Iktaka would be someone from a previous campaign? Oh, how about that? That could be kind of nuts. And Alejandro, for all we know, right? Those held yeah, captive could yeah. be that Alejandro's gone back to the jungle and got himself into a spot of bother. Or the snake. Or maybe there's two paths for Iktaka and, and uh, Alejandro. And one or the other gets captured. Yeah, it feels like they're the two sort of uh, leading characters that we need to pay attention to. Should we do another patron question? Yep, hit me. This is another question from Alex. We he, he he sent in two, and we I decided to split them up. So this is his second question. Charon's Obble seems to be a fairly divisive card. The argument I see most often seems to go along the lines of against, it's too risky, and worse, it makes you play suboptimally by forcing an overly cautious approach. Or four, and he uses uh, slang here and says, nah, bruv, this is rogue, <laughs> not little league. You go big or you go home, and if you can't handle the heat, go back to playing Seeker. And he then says, I may be exaggerating that last bit. He goes on to say, I personally think that both arguments are slightly flawed. To me, the Obel is actually risk mitigation card, uh, as it gives you two free XP that you'd otherwise have to take additional risks during the scenario to get, usually by getting clues of high shroud locations or killing tough enemies. You might be playing more cautiously than you'd otherwise be forced to in order to get the XP for the fancy road cards, but I see it as a feature, not a bug. What are your thoughts? He's not a thing I do where he's, he's answered his question, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, uh, he has but, but good question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would have been all in the just take it camp but then we got defeated on our first blind playthrough so that yeah. would have been one of our characters gone forever which feels feels pretty rough at that point oh man if I you don't have know. doomed as your basic weakness and yeah. you know that you're on a clock anyway yeah yeah pick it up i f- feel like why not like that you're going to draw you're going to draw the bell tolls at some point so you may as well go big <laughs> yeah rather than going home I, I like now as well that we've seen more investigators who can take it that aren't kind of your classic rogue. So Leo Anderson can take it and Ursula can take it. And yeah. What's interesting about that is they, you know, in in Alex's scheme there, you're taking it as a rogue because you can't kill the big enemies or you can't investigate the high shroud locations. And Ursula and Leo definitely can do those things respectively. But do you want the extra XP anyway? Like, Certainly my experience with Ursula is she moves through scenarios so quickly but can't delve that maybe having another way of generating extra XP would be useful and the obble is, is one of those things. It might help with those in, uh, locations which also give you vengeance, which you might not want in... The, the, yeah, the, there's one which is true. two and two in the mm. in the second scenario, isn't there? I think it's called the Chamber of Time or the yeah, Chamber of... Right. Lad's Chamber, something like that. Chamber of Time. Yeah. Chamber of Time. Yeah, that that would be a perfect example that you're you're turning down that two XP because you don't want the vengeance, but you'd be getting it from from the obol. More generally speaking, I'm in favour of cards that are flavourful for a faction. I think that's why I like Delve, I like Time Warp, I like the cards that make you play. You know, or for Survivor, I like Lucky and Look What I Found because they're the cards that kind of bring out the character of that faction and. We talked about this, we've touched on this definitely many times before. If you try and play Skidzo Tool as just a less good guardian, you'll be disappointed. But the point about Skids is that he can also take rogue cards and yeah. leaning into the sort of the faction traits or the, the qualities of a faction can really transform an investigator. So I think anyone who can take the obble should think, Am I running this high risk, high reward strategy? Or also how often do I get defeated? You know, Jenny has such a good stat line 
that maybe it's a real safe bet for her. Like, she's rarely actually beaten down. She's got, I think, eight health and seven sanity. She's kind of tough. Same with Ursula. Ursula, I think that's why it's nice in Ursula, because she's got uh, seven health. So she's not going to get, like, pinged down by damage after just a couple of hits. Famous last words before the Harbinger is beating me up. But yeah, that's my thoughts about it. I think it's. Uh, I think. I think the other thing is that you want to take it early to get the most return out of it, which makes it more scary as a choice. It's not something you just pick up with two scenarios to go. It's like, am I committing to this strategy? And if you're committing early, then you've got more opportunity for one scenario to go wrong and it to all be over. But that's the rogue way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much for that question, Alex. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook and drawn to the flame on Twitter. And we're also drawn to the flame on Patreon. Why not go and have a look at what we're doing there? Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am everywhere as United, which is U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Discord and Twitter and the Reddit. I'm going to start, by the time you hear this, hopefully I have, but I'm going to try and start the card of the day thread again um, because I know some people have been asking after it on the Reddit. So, yeah. Did you run out of cards? Well, I stopped not long before we ran out of cards, but it's just been, things have been really manic uh, here. Um, But I've finally, finally got some time again. So, yeah, uh, that'll be starting up. How about you? Uh, I'm FB on Twitter. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm Zooey Glass and Zozo around the place. So, yeah, you can find me on discord or things like that thank you very much for listening thank you very much